smartcast you are listening to a mint production brought to you by hd smartcast hello hi welcome to why not mint money i'm satya santanam from mint's personal finance team if you're a regular listener of our why not mint money episodes or read our personal finance stories you would be aware that we have a special guru portfolio series for this we speak to leading personalities in the financial industry to understand how they are managing their personal investment portfolio it's our most popular series from which we understand the investment perspectives of various individuals and how they look at money in this episode we have shiv gupta founder and ceo at mumbai based sanctum wealth who is going to share his personal finance journey with us Shiv after working with the Royal Bank of Scotland Group's wealth division for over a decade acquired its Indian wealth division in 2016 and started Sanctum Wealth Management Since then assets being managed by Sanctum Wealth have gone up by a compounded annual growth rate of good 29% to 17000 crore serving about 1200 client families now Now without any further ado let's invite him i'm joined by neil borati head of the personal finance team to lead this episode hi welcome to why not mint money a personal finance podcast where we help you understand basic money concepts and share strategies for you to build your wealth so let's get started on your money journey how you first started investing and your first job in finance my investing journey is inextricably connected to my professional journey I I am a wealth manager of 25 years uh, as it happened I started my career in uh, in internationally in Europe in Switzerland working in a private bank and then subsequently in Singapore so my my investing journey pretty much started there and uh, you know the first investments I remember making were in international markets in the US uh, as it was in in US equities and if I think about my journey from then to now initially Sorry, did Shiv, did you actively pick stocks back then, or did you go to to the ETF route? Yes, good question. I was just about to tell you. So, you know, in these twenty five years, I've gone through uh, experimenting with all styles of investing, uh, as it were. And initially, I did indeed used to be quite active. And you know, when you're when you're learning the trade initially, uh, there is a tendency for a lot of people to to try and exercise control, much more control over their investments. Uh, Uh, and then it tends to mature a little bit over the over time uh, of course i'm making a big generalization it can differ from person to person but uh, you know broadly this does tend to happen so i used to actively trade uh, as it was i would be trading stocks i would be trading options uh, you know on the on the chicago board and it wasn't only restricted to stocks uh, you know internationally there's quite a lot of facility to invest in derivatives as well foreign exchange etc so in the early years of my investing career i tried my hand at all of these things often successfully uh, sometimes spectacularly unsuccessfully as well uh, but were there particular shiv were there particular um, areas that were your forte like tech stocks or um, commodities like is there among all the options you mentioned was there a particular focus look you know as a wealth manager you tend to be exposed to a very broad array of instruments right so uh, because you know for your clients itself you have to provide expertise and and a platform to to transact uh, and get advice on on the full range so that would include fixed income and equities and derivatives in all markets as well in all currencies etc so i don't think there was any particular forte that i can pick 
uh, and I did try my hand at all types of different uh, investing styles and instruments. I was at uh, I was in the market at different times that would be considered seminal in that the dot com boom and the dot com bust and a lot of things that happened afterwards. So you started during the dot com boom, right? Just before. Just, Just before. before. So yes. So did you find yourself getting caught up in it, like um, you know what kind of portfolio would you have had in? Say 1998 or 99. Uh, yes, I would be lying if I said I wasn't caught up in both the euphoria and then subsequently what happened uh, in uh, in in the equity markets. I mean, you know, at that time, uh, it was very easy to just invest in uh, some story stocks. And by the way, we've seen that story played out over and over again in subsequent decades as well. And then when uh, when the bubble bubble burst. i think uh, i would have suffered some what as well uh the only thing i would say is that pretty much a few years in i had started setting aside some corpus which i started splitting my investments into a risk corpus and a sort of long term corpus so the extent of the impact would have been felt by the risk corpus and not so much by the longer term corpus so how much would you have set aside between the risk and the longer term corpus like percentage you know Earlier it used to be, I mean, it used to be half and half, right in the beginning. But you know, Neil, you have to think about all of this as part of the learning experience, right? Of the of the of the lab test that someone might go through and try different kinds of combinations and different things. Uh, subsequently, of course, it's come down quite a lot. And now, uh, I, I don't even have a risk corpus, if you will, because I follow a much more traditional asset allocation approach, which is much more consistent with the profile that I now have. uh and and so so i hope that answers your question it it used to be sizable the risk corpus used to be sizable more than 50% right in the beginning and then over the years it's kind of gone away even yeah yeah so if you had to think of the best year for um your for the trading part of your portfolio what would it be and how much would you have made as in in percentage terms and also the worst like what was the high and the low point I think the high is some multiple of what you might have started with, and always tended to precede the peak, <clears throat> right? And that could have been two, three hundred percent because you know uh, a lot of my trading at the time involved option buying, and uh, sometimes you'd buy deep out of the money options, and if they hit, then you're talking about a serious multiple like eight x, ten x of what you invested. And even if you put it across the whole portfolio, I would have had a year of two hundred, three hundred percent. return just doing that uh, a really bad year could have seen 60% declines as well and and that's how it works right for people and again <clears throat> you have to think a lot of this is speculative trading because a disciplined trader might have a slightly different way of uh, managing his portfolio his or her portfolio with stop losses and all kinds of other limits uh, that yeah. involve position sizing where maybe it doesn't have to be as extreme as this yeah So that would uh, even in the years in which you were Switzerland, that would be with RBS or uh, another bank. I started. Uh, I was at Citibank, private bank in Switzerland, and then I was mm-hmm. I moved to Singapore from Switzerland after a couple of years, continuing to work with Citibank, and then I joined RBS in two thousand and one, Coots yeah. as it was because that's the international arm, which is where I was till two thousand and nine before I moved to India. 2009 as in after the crisis after market crash 
is when you moved pretty much pretty much i mean that that was the timing uh, as it happened uh, rbs had bought ebn amros uh, in consortium with a couple of other banks with santander and uh, uh, fortis i think they had bought uh, ebn amros business and the right. india business had gone to rbs so i moved from singapore to india to head the private banking business in 2009 to transition it from ebn amro to rbs right. uh, and that's right it was just as the financial crisis had started to that is basically it was in the eye of the storm if you will in some ways yeah yeah that was the timing okay so um if you can tell us a bit about your time in singapore like um you know you've been the think of the financial you know activity at that time so any any lessons from that time i think uh, you can think of this the learning from my time in singapore 10 years in in two ways one is what is what did i learn because those were some very formative years for me as a private banker and initially i used to manage clients myself before i started managing teams and managing clients and i do think that the direct direct experience of experience of managing clients is just hard to beat in terms of getting true insights into how things work uh, because a lot of investing is all about psychology right and so you realize that the biggest determinant of what's going on and the way people do things is their psychology not the maths behind a lot of the analysis that we throw behind how we construct portfolios etc so i think as i grew to as a private banker the, on the first dimension that i mentioned the big learning was just appreciating human psychology and taking the time to understand your clients better uh and 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 any examples of um, how investors behaved which is not how they should behave as in not not thinking in the rational terms i think the <laughs> investing world is replete with examples neil of people doing things that you might not conventionally expect them to do uh you know this world of behavioral psychology uh you have something called which i particularly like called the endowment effect i i don't particularly like the fact that people do it but i like the way it is described as a concept is that uh, you know people tend to value what they already have in their hands more than something that they don't have and you see it in a wide variety of circumstances and as a wealth manager you see it all the time so what you already have you don't want to get rid of even if it's rational to do that you know a lot of times you look at people who have let's say a big real estate holding which is which is a holding that they've had for a long time and it may represent a disproportionate portion of the portfolio and they don't want to get rid of it because they're biased to holding it and they always think it's more valuable than it actually probably is i'm not sure if you've come across this kind of a situation but these are these are three or four since you asked for example okay so um when you moved to india what were your thoughts back then because india would have been a very tiny market part of the global uh, financial services industry and even overall as an economy you know it was tiny today it's a little bigger but it's still very very small compared to what you would have seen in singapore and switzerland so what were your thoughts back then look i think as a as a financial market it may have been small but as a country and an economy growing the growth potential was always there the question was and so that was my thinking back then as it has remained since then you know sometimes <clears throat> uh, you may be right about a view for a very long time uh, and nothing may happen and then suddenly everything happens all at once 
but the thinking was that the economic potential of the country, given the demographics and given certain given certain other advantages that we have, is enormous. And it requires a series of policies applied consistently over a period of time for that value to be unlocked. And that, quite simply, that was the thinking. And uh, that remained the thinking. And arguably, uh, I think that uh, we've been seeing the that journey begin over the last four or five years. We've actually started seeing that unlocking. So I think for it to achieve scale on an accelerated basis was already always possible. That was the thinking. And I think that's what we're starting to see now. Uh, alongside this, of course, you're starting to see financialization also. Uh, <clears throat> and with financialization, I think that there's a structural change taking place which affects markets. So not only is the economy growing, but the markets themselves are growing in absolute and relative terms too. Right. So as an investor, um, how were you positioned in the 2002 to 7 period? Um, and uh, the crash that followed, how did it impact you? So I think by the time uh, I constructed my portfolio in Singapore, which went through some evolution there itself, I'd become kind of a, uh, I had a more stable portfolio with, uh, uh, with, uh, with a defined asset allocation, uh, somewhat skewed towards equities, quite skewed towards equities, but nevertheless a defined asset allocation. So I was, I had graduated if you want to use that term, if I want to use that, if I can use that term, to uh, a balanced portfolio with an aggressive tilt and using third-party managers to construct that portfolio. And so uh, I was affected by the crash in the way you would expect a normal balanced portfolio to be affected. I think at its worst point, it may have been down 30%. So were you uh, at a roughly 60-40 level? Yeah, we were yeah, I gave it to you. Yes. And it would have been down 30% at its worst at a portfolio level. And, and that was fine, uh, honestly. Because then subsequently the recovery was also very sharp, right? Uh, you know, when, when it did start. So, and over a period of time, it kind of normalized and started showing expected results. Because for me, I did transition thereafter from a largely international portfolio to a largely domestic portfolio. So that was a big change in my life. But when I did create a domestic portfolio, also it's following the same asset allocation rules largely. Right. So when the markets crashed, you didn't pull out any money at all. You weren't worried. You weren't sort of, uh, you know, you, you didn't want to change any of it. I practiced what I preached. Uh, I'm glad to say. Right. you still continue to hold those investments sorry any of the first initial so, uh, Satya, as i was saying over a over a 3 4 year period i transitioned from a an international portfolio to a domestic portfolio as uh, i became permanently resident back here in india so what over a period i did sell those investments at at appropriate times and uh, but any uh, reason for that shift? Because you could still continue to hold the international portfolio. Yes, some of the moves have been determined by my liquidity needs from time to time as well, Neil. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't really, uh, you know, uh, as you may know, in 2016, I set up Sanctum. Uh, it would require a large capital investment from my side. You know, before that, I had some liquidity needs. So, you know, when I think about these transitions, it was also driven by my liquidity needs over the years. 
and they would have provided some natural opportunities to reposition uh, or call them opportunities call them needs to reposition so it wasn't really as much a portfolio decision that i'm not earning domestic from international as much as mm-hmm. a combination of that and the fact that i needed capital on uh, here right for your business yeah okay um now uh in the period since so you know uh 2009 you would have seen the crash and um you were kind of busy with your business but any changes that come to your mind that you've made as an investor over the years i think the big broad change uh neil is to move from a slightly more active hands on approach to a much more passive approach so i have instruments in my portfolio that may be actively managed but not by me uh and the overall approach to the asset allocation is to make as few or to investments is to make as few decisions as possible so i think quite a significant uh, shift that it started creeping in just before uh, i moved here to to kind of now so you know i'd, I'd, I'd rather just let the portfolio uh spend some time constructing the portfolio uh spend some time from time to time making tactical asset allocation cash allocation changes but other than that try not to make too many decisions i really don't make very many decisions in relation to my portfolio now anymore and that's a big change i don't actually trade satya the truth is uh, I, i neither have the time nor nor am i sure that i'm very good at it uh what i do is that sometimes when you see a dislocation in the market or a market extreme if i have some excess capital i may make an opportunistic uh, move uh and so i don't know that you can call that trading uh but i would do that sometimes because i do think dislocations provide good opportunities uh and so if you can capture them then it provides outsized returns any example of this <laughs> uh look when the uh when the pandemic was upon us i switched a, a portion of my fixed income into equities in a percentage that was relatively high uh once or twice when you see a stock which is beaten down more than you think it might be worthwhile you know you might you might have you, one might look at that uh so i think that the i think the best example is the one of uh, uh switching fixed income into equities when when the market was severely severely stressed would you remember the approximate percentages like how much were you in debt before and <clears throat> so i've generally maintained a 3070 debt equity allocation it can vary to as much as 50-50 or 90-10 uh, but i try not to make such big swings i think on this occasion i might have taken off 10 or maybe even 15% of the debt component and put it into equities right and in terms of other asset classes like gold etc um are you you only make tactical bets right you said Actually, yes. Uh, in that, <clears throat> I have to clarify this. We, we, I tend to now follow Sanctum's asset allocation framework, and within Sanctum's asset allocation framework, I, I look at the tactical asset classes that we prefer uh, at any point in time and under or over allocate to those as the recommendation may be. Now. this asset allocation framework has a strategic asset allocation framework and then 
the tactical changes that you make. The strategic framework itself has some allocation to alternatives, right? Which could be gold, uh, which in our case, uh, if you wish to think about it, can include uh, REITs and invits, even though, you know, some people may tend to think about them as fixed income alternatives. And I, 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 frankly, there's nothing right or wrong with either approach. So to your question, uh, there is provision of 10 to 15% in alternatives. It is gold and REITs and invits. Uh, and uh, it exists in the strategic allocation also, and it exists at a tactical level also. I hope that answers your question. We, yeah, I would include um, P, uh, private equity and venture capital, etc. But given my own direct exposure to some companies, which is a big skew in my overall net worth, I am not doing that at this point of time. So when you say skew, you mean towards Santam itself, right? Your stake in Santam. And and one or two others, yes. Right. And um, so one thing you said is that you changed quite a bit from directly picking stocks towards um, you know managed products. So now, what would be the split between stocks and funds in your portfolio? Uh, I I don't I don't have any stocks anymore. Uh, it's funds and PMSs. That's and among. Among the mutual funds, do you also uh, invest in ETFs? And if so, how much would that be? I don't precisely remember, but the answer is yes. I mean, I think the allocation between funds, what you're trying to look at are sources of diversification between active versus uh, uh, passive styles, uh, between style diversification, uh, you know, a, a cap, market cap diversification. You try to achieve all of those things. So where you're looking at just index replication for a portion, you would tend to go with ETFs. Where you're looking for more the value of alpha coming from the manager or the style, then you would look at uh, non-ETF. So I, I would think that as much as 30-40% of my equity allocation could be in the passive investing style, if that answers your question. Right. And essentially tracking the Nifty or also look at debt ETFs? I don't have any debt ETFs at this point, but that's right. not to say that I couldn't. Right. No, they've become quite popular in the last couple of years, both index funds and ETFs on the rates. And for good reason. Uh, and like I said, so, you know, what I have right now isn't the universe of what I could have, uh, for example. Right. So, as a principle, I can see myself holding Bharat Bond or <laughs> any that ETF right. that right. finds its way into it's just it's not just it's just not reflected there in the current tactical asset allocation. Right. So in debt, then, are you mostly in the short end of the curve? It's a mix, I'd have to say, uh, Neil. It's a mix. Uh, call it Babel, if you'd like. Uh, yeah. I, I think, and if further, if you want to go towards credit also, there is a little bit of credit exposure also. Right. So I think it's a healthy mix. Uh, there is There are guilts in there. There are some savings. Uh, instruments there also, there's a corporate bond fund. Uh, there's even an ARP fund, if you want to call it that, and there's one or two money mm -hmm. market instruments. A lot of these troubled groups, so there was ILFS itself, there was Reliance ADAG and so on. So, uh, I was fortunate to not be in the worst affected instruments, if you will. I don't want to take any mm -hmm. specific names. I think our fixed income team was also quite proactive in identifying exits early. But uh, I, I won't say that I was able to get out because, you know, honestly, I don't know what get out means. 
so in effect i'm not tactically looking at that component besides none of these are going to zero what was the mm-hmm. impact of something that went wrong from my vantage point was that something that might have provided 9% returns ended up providing 4-5% returns mm-hmm. when looked at across a 3-4 year holding period if, if you know what i mean so the truth is that i was not able to exit all the schemes that were affected by the uh, uh, turmoil but in the grand scheme of things if that impaired my return by a couple of percent or 2-3% after every underlying instrument is accounted for then that is what the effect would have been so mm. you see what i'm saying so uh, i i don't you know I, in the evolution of the market and in a balanced diversified portfolio maybe the effect of all of that would have been 1.5% on returns for a couple of years uh, and so yeah. that's the viewpoint through which i look at it neil i hope that uh, makes sure sure on the equity side uh, so you have about uh, 30% i think in etfs um the balance i assume would be in mid and small cap actively managed funds yes in absolutely right yes. so yes yeah and there is about 10% in international funds also so right there's there's also a mix of index versus some uh, active emerging markets europe japan type instruments right so if you had to name one scheme that has created the most wealth for you um since 2009 or since uh, you know the past 5 6 years what would that be I, I don't even know if I can answer that. Neil, look, I don't remember because there would be two, three schemes which all have done well. To me, if if, if you're okay, I'd like to answer that at the level of the tactical asset allocation decision, I, uh, rather than the instrument itself. It would have been one of the big fund houses, honestly. Uh, but mm-hmm. the tactical asset allocation decision that has worked out best has been the allocation to mid caps and, and small caps. The Right. Uh, overweight to mid caps and small caps which has worked out in terms of generating portfolio alpha the best yeah. uh, and so that's i would like to treat that as a proxy for the answer to the question you asked me yeah yeah uh, we we also made a very good tactical uh, it wasn't to do with equities but uh, uh, overweighting reits and inbits in our portfolio mm-hmm. was an extremely good decision and that's, that's but when you uh, say overweight you know you have a 15% <coughs> or cap right so it would be within that 15% that would be it in that uh, you know so 5-7% might find itself in the strategic asset allocation and 15% represents an overweight from there yeah adding that as a fixed income proxy if you want to think about it like that so replacing certain other fixed income instruments with these uh, yeah. that's what the overweight decision is essentially suggesting and, right. and that's worked out really well for me for our clients <clears throat> as well right and with mid and small caps um, is it an allocation that you more or less held constant because that's also had its own cycle you know they topped out in end of 2017 then two three years of going nowhere now slightly back in the post pandemic era so if you were having this conversation four years ago and you asked me the worst tactical asset allocation decision that i've made over the preceding three four years it would be the exact same answer uh, right. so yes i held on to that position during that time uh, and yeah. so it didn't it was a source of underperformance during that cycle right that you're referring yeah. to in the 17 18 type of a period yeah. but, uh, by the way prior to which again it had been an outperforming uh, uh, yeah uh, sub asset class so um you know we had this question in the in the sheet about 
like one success and one failure that uh, you could think of and you mentioned reads and invits as one big success um but if you were to take a longer term view of that not just in the past year but you know in the past 8 10 years what would be your one big successful investment and one thing that really didn't work out I have to say, Neil, I don't think about it in those terms, so it's a little difficult. Even though I'll try and answer this question, <clears throat> for me, you have an asset allocation. The asset allocation is based on a return expectation and some kind of a volatility or risk expectation, and your, and then you make some tactical asset allocation changes to kind of do slightly better, right? That's just the basic, pure, fundamental framework. I'm very big subscriber to that framework. I look at it in that light. If it's working on that basis, then I don't spend too much time thinking about the. components uh and which individually stood out or not because as a whole i would expect it to kind of work out right so i think that's how i think about it i really don't think that there is any failure that stands out in the same magnitude as the decision to overweight mid caps and small caps stands out so they could be like international has not been working out off lake uh for example right after a big swing up so you could say that that's a failure but then that's you know that's a year right they were If you looked at the year and a half before that, then it could have been doing extremely well. So, so I hope that perspective. That's how I think. Uh, you know, also there are there'll be small failures. Something that was down percent in a year, uh, something else that was down in six seven percent in another year, and those were the components of the portfolio that were not doing well in that year. Uh, but on the whole, the big standout is what I just described to you. I think the bigger thing to be clear about is whether you are overweight equities and fixed income, or, or, or which part of the different asset classes you are overweight. I mean, a lot of people say this; it's true. Uh, and I think therein, overall, staying overweight equities worked out from a balanced portfolio position. Yeah. Now, in terms of insurance, you said that uh, you have both life and health insurance from your company, um, but individually, I assume that you would need. a substantial life cover so did you want did you at some point supplement that or like what's your view on that the uh, substantial is a relative term uh, and i think our uh, company life insurance is not in substantial so i really haven't felt a need to augment that to be honest with you uh yeah that's it's a term plan i assume yeah what about real estate how, how do you view uh, real estate as an asset class so look i think there are three elements that i want to comment on thinking about real estate uh it is an alternate asset class and in some form or the other it would have a role to play in a portfolio in creating better risk adjusted returns and whatever you want to call the goal whether it's instruments like reits whether it's commercial real estate whether it's uh, you know unlisted real estate private equity type instruments depending on the size of the portfolio etc there would be some role to play in india of course real estate is overrepresented in most portfolios for a variety of reasons uh, at all wealth levels but it becomes even more stark at mid income levels than it does at the high income levels uh, and then when it comes to residential real estate that's where i have a big problem with where things are i think real residential real estate prices are distorted uh, in india you know 2 1/2 3% rental yields mean there's an income producing asset class really doesn't cut ties uh quite aside from the difficulty in managing it and all the friction that happens there also it's not that it's not that liquid right and the traditional capital appreciation that people have seen on residential real estate what could also be seen as a long term structural move 
which because of many of the reforms and changes that have taken place may not be replicated and the truth is that that's not happened for the last several years so when i think about residential real estate and all of these attributes then uh, as an investment aside from a lifestyle choice or a dwelling house decision i don't favor that at all because it's distorted particularly in india right so in terms of your investments uh, it's your primary home and your country house or um, it's i, I don't i don't own a primary home uh, right. for example uh, you rent your so home i rent my home where i live uh, and i have a country house which is a lifestyle decision okay uh of course the rest of it we had other investors come into uh and so we together created a consortium then that actually funded the entire transaction sure sure so did you have any apprehension then of uh, you know transforming from an employee to an entrepreneur from a you no know, from personal finances perspective uh yeah i would be lying if i did not uh i i think that uh one was very conscious that one was going from a particular lifestyle to a less predictable lifestyle a relatively predictable lifestyle to a much much less predictable lifestyle in every way whatsoever and finances were obviously a big part of it uh so the answer is yes i did have apprehensions and uh, and uh, but i planned for that uh, one of the big things about managing uh, volatile circumstances in life is to expect volatile circumstances in life if you go into a cold place then dress appropriately and carry some more jacket so you know that's how that's my philosophy towards life business and everything so there were apprehensions but by expecting that things would be difficult and planning for those to the extent that what was possible i think i was able to also alleviate those apprehensions quite quickly So uh um, you know just another question regarding this uh, move uh, so how have your personal finance journey uh, you know changed after becoming an entrepreneur have your strategies personal finance strategies uh, have changed any i mean the asset allocation or because you're now invested in sanctum wealth i mean it's it's high equity so have you reduced your uh, equity portion uh, overall in your whole portfolio and increase your fixed uh, you know fixed income portion so how have your asset allocation or any of your personal finance strategies changed after that uh it's a good question that a lot of people would expect you to do just what you said right now but uh, the reality is they have not changed uh for me i thought that uh, you know the a balanced portfolio with a slightly aggressive tilt is more than enough over a longer time period to reflect the risk reward combination that i can carry even with a skewed investment towards sector because i also felt that from a growth of assets perspective that is quite optimal and while you could argue that you'd expect you know uh, concentrated assets in sanctum to grow or your stake to grow i didn't see any reason that i had to uh, shift the portfolio allocation to simply income producing and very safe assets i think a balanced portfolio is safe enough even in a 4 5 year time frame to not feel the need to change the 
uh, allocation. Sure, sure. So uh, my next my next question is about you know your biggest lesson from managing someone else's money. You know you already mentioned that you know it's about understanding the psychology of the investors' clients. So um, just thinking out loud, uh, were there any sleepless nights because of boom or burst of market cycles and clients asking about the performance of their investments? So how is it for you? What was the biggest lesson managing somebody else's money? That's two questions. Uh, one was were there a, 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 any sleepless nights? There were plenty of sleepless nights. Uh, unfortunately, you know our service, our product is completely pro-cyclical. It's the, the modes of the market determine how people feel. And sometimes, even if you have the knowledge, the fortitude, equanimity to know that markets work in cycles and things will come back, you still have to grapple with people's moods as they go through that experience. And that can expose you to a lot of unpleasant interactions. So many times, you know, when you're thinking about uh, what's happening in the market, you're not so worried about whether it'll come back or not come back, but how is someone going to react to it? And you don't always know. And uh, I, I'm going to take the liberty of making a slightly nuanced point here on that. You know, there is this concept of actual preference versus revealed preference. And many a time when we are, when we are profiling clients, we'll ask them, you know, how would you react to a particular situation? And unless the person has been in it, they don't really know how they will react to it. So many a time, even if you're doing all the right things about asking people their profiles, they not be, may, may not be the actual profiles. How they actually react when something happens may be quite different. So, uh, so and particularly negative market situations when markets fall, because what also happens is when markets fall, you know, you get a lot of negativity starts getting spread into the environment. You put on CNBC, you put on Bloomberg, it's the bears who are talking and businesses are not doing well. So it can become a difficult situation to handle. And I think that uh, the, uh, uh, so the point here is that lots of sleepless nights, not necessarily because of what's going to happen in the market, but hoping that you'll be able to successfully help clients manage their journey through it all. And that, you know, that you'll be able to deal with the intense interactions that you'll have to have. The biggest lesson, uh, and there is one, I mean, I, I would like to say there are many lessons, but there is one biggest lesson in it all for a wealth manager, particularly who's dealing with clients. And that is to be in touch with your clients more when things are down than otherwise. That assurance is invaluable in building relationships over a period of time and helping, in fact, clients stay the course because they're, they're you know, they're subjected to a lot of different influences. And if you're not there regularly, uh, then you know you may not be able to get them to do what's in their own interests, and that 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 doesn't end in good outcomes. Uh, so the biggest lesson is be there more when things are down. Uh, it'll seriously increase your odds of being successful. I think. Sure, 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 sure. How do you involve your family in financial decisions at home? Well, my my wife and I uh, make the financial decisions, uh, and she. We make all the spending decisions, the big spending decisions together. Uh, the really big spending decisions, I would say. And, and given this uh, decision of starting Sanctum Wealth, buying out. Would be a really big financial decision yeah. for sure. Uh, yeah. And I would have discussed that uh, amply with my wife uh, and, and other members of my family too. Uh, and uh, but you know, so far as portfolio is concerned, I mean, aside from broadly agreeing what our financial goals are, uh, 
we uh, i mean you know given that this is my vocation that it's pretty much left to me to make those decisions yeah that's all from my uh, our side uh, shiv thank you so much for joining us thank you so much shiv absolute pleasure thank you very much That's all in this episode listeners thank you for listening in we hope you found this podcast informative if you have any queries you can reach out to neel or me on twitter or you can also write to us at mintmoney@livemint.com this was a mint production brought to you by hd smartcast hd smartcast